Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Um, the only thing I regret about having the event uh, tonight is that the uh, art ex uh, exhibition that was all on all the walls all around us uh, has been taken down to go to the next school. And so um, uh, it was a beautiful exhibition, but tonight it's a little different. Uh, and so I apologize for that. Uh, but good evening and welcome to the Bush Center. Uh, tonight we welcome uh, Sheldon Bleiweiss uh, as our guest speaker. He is the oldest child of two Holocaust survivors. Uh, Shelley Bleiweiss grew up in Houston, Texas. Uh, he now lives in Wake Forest. His parents uh, were both from Poland and survived the Holocaust using false identities as non-Jews. Shelley has been teaching about the Holocaust since 2000. Yeah, he has spent five years as a docent at the Houston Holocaust Museum. He accompanied several thousand high school students on a week-long March of the Living trip to Poland as they explored the remnants of Jewish life there and toured some of the death camps. Uh, Penny and I uh, were in Central Europe this spring, and uh, we visited Terezim, which is the ghetto and concentration camp outside of Prague. And I'd have to say that was one of the truly moving and, and sobering experiences, experience of our lives. Um, Shelley is a member of the North Carolina Council on the Holocaust, a docent and a Holocaust educator at Temple Beth Orr in Raleigh, and teaches Holocaust courses for the Osher, am I saying that right, Osher? Uh, lifelong learning programs uh, at Duke and NC State universities. Uh, Shelley travels throughout the state talking to students and community groups. He has been the featured speaker at several community Holocaust commemoration ceremonies. Um, at the time that uh, Shelley and I met uh, and got to talking about him coming to be with us, to talk to us about the 80th anniversary of, of Kristallnacht, which will be uh, tomorrow night, um, neither he nor I are a prophet nor sons of prophets, uh, so we had no idea that uh, talking on this topic would be as relevant as it is uh, to, uh, at, at, given the circumstances and the things, the tragic things that have been happening in our nation, especially with what has happened in Pittsburgh. Uh, so tonight, Mr. Bleiweiss will be lecturing on Kristallnacht. Uh, the night that paved the way for the Holocaust. Would you please join me in welcoming Shelley? Eighty years ago this weekend, significant events occurred in Nazi Germany that became a pivotal point in world history. At the time, few understood the importance of those events. Today, However, we now know that those events were precursors to one of humanity's darkest hours. These events became known as Kristallnacht. So Kristallnacht means night of broken glass. It was a wave of violent anti-Jewish carnage that took place throughout Germany, Austria, and the Sudetenland November 9th and 10th of 1938. The name comes from the shards of glass that littered the street, from the windows of synagogues, homes, and Jewish-owned businesses. It was instigated primarily 
by Nazi Party officials, stormtroopers, and Hitler Youth. It symbolized the final shattering of Jewish existence in Germany and foreshadowed the catastrophic events that became known as the Holocaust. The Holocaust is the systematic, bureaucratic, state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million Jews by the Nazis. It comes from the Greek, meaning sacrifice by fire, and the Hebrew word is Shoah. Raise your hand if you were raised or you had grandparents when you were growing up. Raise your hand. Wow. I did not because they were killed by the Nazis in the Holocaust. They were among the six million Jews. There were other victims of the Nazis, and you can see political opponents, the Roma. You can see why they were, they were victims, the Poles, the Slavs, the Jehovah Witnesses, because they couldn't salute Hitler or serve in the German army. Red Army political officers and Soviet POWs, male homosexuals, not female, just the males, because females could still have babies. But the males had their behaviors considered a hindrance to the preservation of the German nation and the chronically disabled. The Holocaust did not start with gas chambers. It started, as you can see, with the persecution, humiliation, the violence, the denial of rights, separation and concentration into ghettos, deportation to death camps, and extermination. We're going to talk tonight about the first two. The prelude. World War I, deadliest conflict in history up to that point. Over nine million soldiers killed. Led to major political changes in Europe, with four major empires collapsing the Austro-Hungarian, the Ottoman, the Russian, and the German, and new nations formed, and we see the rise of nationalism. So you can see that this was Europe before and then Europe after 1919. The Versailles Treaty in June of 1919 was written by the Allies. Germans had no participation, and there were 700 directives against the Germans, and the Germans could not change any of them. They had to accept total defeat and total responsibility for starting the war. Germany had to pay billions in reparations and forced to give up 13% of their territory and 6 million inhabitants. And they were restricted in building and establishing its military force. So consequences of the treaty, well, we had the monarchy ending. We have a dem democratic Weimar Republic. And the very first task as a government was to surrender. And people began wondering, why were we surrendering? Because the propaganda, the news, this was fake news at the time, said the Germans were winning. There was no foreign enemy on German soil. So how could they have surrendered? We had monstrous unemployment and hyperinflation. And you can see that in January of 1920, the Reich mark was 64.8 marks to the dollar. Look at it three years later, 4.2 billion marks to the dollar. You see a lady buying cabbage with a basket of banknotes. The baskets are more valuable than the money. There's a story of people coming up with a wheelbarrow to buy stuff at the grocery, and they leave the wheelbarrow outside with the money. They come back outside, the wheelbarrow's gone, the money's still there. Money was as worthless as toilet paper. 
So a lot of people got angry. They became resentful. They felt humiliated, confused, betrayed, stabbed in the back. If there was no enemy on German soil and they had to surrender, who did it? Had to be the communists, the socialists, and, let's not forget, the Jews. So many Germans were drawn to political parties. They really wanted to regain that lost territory, rearm and expand the army, promote national renewal, and oppose communism. That was the biggest enemy, the communists. There were false stories that came out about the Jews wanting to control the world. The Russian Revolution happened to have a lot of Jews in lead roles. And a, a story, a book came out called The Protocols of the Elder of Zion, which was an absolute fabrication, but was supposed to be minutes of a, Jewish a meeting of the Jewish leaders that was talking about conquering the world. So people started putting that together. It's the communists, it's the Jews, they're the ones that are kind of come take over, they're the ones that stabbed us in the back. So the Nazi party, their mission was to right the wrongs done to Germany after World War I, punish those responsible, annihilate the Marxist view, and return to traditional values. Some of us may remember being raised with children not to be seen and not heard, absolute obedience. And ladies, this is my favorite. You don't go to school, you don't work, you're a baby machine. You're gonna have babies and take care of them. Like that idea? No, nobody's answering. No? Okay, that works. That's traditional. I've talked to schools and the boys have said, yeah, that works for me. Let, them, let the girls have the babies. Except the guys had to be hard workers, quiet, strong-willed, persevering, and basically defenders of the fatherland. But most importantly, and you may have heard this before from someone else, Hitler saw his personality as Nazi Party's greatest strength. The Nazi philosophy followed four basic things. One was social Darwinism. And we've all heard of Charles Darwin and the theory of evolution, the survival of the fittest. Social Darwinism said that societies were just like that. The strongest society deserved to survive. That society happened to be the Aryan race. There was racial anti-Semitism, and you can see from the little poster, propaganda poster, that the Jews are a virus that are going to cause societies to rot from within. And of course, the children have it in their blood. They're going to grow up to become dangerous, to become the people that are going to give everybody lice. Another area of philosophy was anti-Bolshevism or anti-communism, because they thought it was an ideological Jewish reaction or creation designed for world domination. But most also, most importantly, was living space, Lubinskram. Just like I like to watch the animal shows on Discovery Channel and Animal Planet and all those. And you know that the lion pride that has more land does better. And they have more, more lions than the, sol the solitary lion. That's what the Nazis believed. They needed more space because they were going to, remember, ladies are going to be having babies. So they needed more space. So the Nazi party stoked fears of inadequate national defense and sovereignty, fears of communism, fears of economic decline and job insecurity. Foreign influence was going to take over. And it was going to just, there's more the depravity in German society 
generated by Jews. So this is what they stoked fears of. People were drawn to the Nazi party because they saw it as a young, dynamic, proactive force that could basically fix the country's social and economic problems. Guaranteed full employment. They were going to remove foreign and Jewish influences. They were going to cleanse Germany's streets and mass media of the criminal activity and social behavior. You were part of an exclusive superior group. Every pure-blooded Aryan German could have his own place. And of course, return to additional values. Life would be structured and simpler. Less decisions to make. They'll make them for you. And of course, restoring national pride. So in summary, all of these things came together. The Russian Revolution, the rise of nationalism, social Darwinism, the stab-in-the-back theory, dissatisfaction with the Democratic Republic, impact of the Versailles Treaty, and the stock market crash of 1929, which impacted the world tremendously. So both this country and Germany were looking for a savior. In 1932, we elected Roosevelt. In 1932, Germany got Hitler. He was not elected to office. Germany was a parliament. And the party received 37% of the vote in the 1932 elections. So the president, this young fellow here, <coughs> was forced to appoint Hitler as chancellor or prime minister because his party got the most votes. So Hitler was never elected to office. He was appointed. And that became the beginning of the Holocaust. In February, the parliament, the Reichstag, caught on fire. So the Nazis banned the communists. And so they created a law so they could have martial law and suspended the Constitution. Think about that for a minute. Having your constitution suspended, your rights are restricted. Anyone can be arrested and held without trial. They could come to your house, walk in, take you out. Didn't have to have any reason. Didn't have to have any warrant. Decrees could be enacted without parliamentary confirmation. That's like saying you can have an executive decree, you don't need Congress. And Hitler was the only one who could propose new laws, and this provided the legal text, uh, context and pretext for a dictatorship. If you began opposing this, as many teachers did, we all of a sudden had the Gestapo and the security service coming to take you away, and you're going to wind up going to Dachau. The very first concentration camp that was established in 1933. But look at the last line. The army, civil servants, and judges did not swear an allegiance to Germany or the Constitution. They swore an allegiance to Hitler. Think about that. In this country, you join the army, you defend the Constitution. You come to office, you defend the Constitution. You do not defend the president. But here, they swore an allegiance to Hitler. So the Nazis began controlling all of German economy and Germany, German life. And by mid-July, the Nazi party was the only political party left. In August of 1934, the president dies. We don't know how. 
he was old, we figured he died of old age, but within a month, they had a nationwide plebiscite that confirmed the merger of the chancellor and the president into one office, the office of Fuhrer, which means leader. And so now we have the Fuhrer principle. Hitler stood outside the legal state and determined matters of policy himself. His will became the foundation of all legislation. If Hitler wanted it, it was going to happen. So Nazi dictatorship became a precondition to Kristallnacht. They used propaganda very effectively. They used the modern technology of the time, which was radio. As somebody heard say today on, 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 on radio, their radio was their cell phone. That's how prevalent it was and how common. So they put all this stuff out in the radio. Except there was one radio station, I should say, one radio station that was Nazi controlled, and they loved to play Ragnarian music. And of course, after a few hours of that, you get the Nazi propaganda. So this is what they used the propaganda for, to mobilize the population to support the wars of conquest, encourage passivity and acceptance, motivate those who were going to impl implement the mass murder, hide details of the atrocities, justify actions, and deceive the victims. They use it very effectively. From 1933 to 1939, there were more than 400 decrees and regulations restricting all aspects of public and private lives of Jews. They wanted to create a virtual ghetto, basically cordon off Jews from German life. They wanted to make life so miserable that the Jews would want to leave. And they began the process of Aryanization, basically infusing German society with the Nazi ideals. Here's some anti-Jewish laws. Doctors are suspended from charity services. Jews were banned from editorial po posts, dismissed from jobs as teachers, doctors, lawyers, and engineers, forbidden to perform on the stage or screen, denied admission to medical school, expelled from the army, and that last one. You could not name Jewish soldiers among the dead in World War I memorials. Over 100,000 Jews served the German army in World War I. Now their names had to be taken off the memorials. September of 1935, we have the Nuremberg Race Laws. Hitler did not invent a thing. He copied these laws from the Jim Crow laws of this country and almost took them word for word. There was an exhibit I saw at the museum in Houston that basically, I think it just knocked my mic off, that you could put the laws side by side and in, in the Jim Crow laws, they had the word white and colored. That was the phrase at the time. And you just substitute Jew and Aryan, and they are the same laws. So couldn't have marriage and extramarital relationships between Jews and Aryans. Jew couldn't be a citizen of the Third Reich. They couldn't wave the flag, display its colors. Had to report and evaluate and assess all of their property. Civil servants of Aryan descent are, uh, of non-Aryan descent are dismissed. And all throughout history, if Jews converted, they were left alone. Hitler said, I can't do that. Because if it's in their blood, that means it's racial. So again, he copied from the Jim Crow laws. The Jim Crow laws defined what a Negro person was. Here's what Howie defined it here. 
He said, if you have one Jewish grandparent, that makes you Jewish. Doesn't matter who you are. So if you were a Baptist, if you were a Lutheran, if you were a Catholic, if your grandmother was Jewish or grandfather was Jewish, that made you Jewish. And I happened to meet a person in Poland on my trip who happened to be a priest. And he discovered that his grandmother was Jewish. So here's a Catholic priest who all of a sudden realizes he's Jewish. How does that theology go? I don't know. <laughs> Jews couldn't serve as tax consultants. Teachers were banned from public schools. Children were expelled from public schools. Jews refused admission to the bar. Jewish lawyers had their licenses revoked. Jews were banned from all cinemas. That's movie theater, movies. Theaters, sports facilities. Jews were for, they had separate areas for Jews and Aryans. And there's pictures of Jews sitting on benches and it said, only for Jews. Again, just like this country. Jewish-owned businesses were closed and the assets were transferred to non-Jewish Germans. Berlin hosted the Olympics in August of 1936. It promoted an image of a new, strong, and united Germany, but also a false image of a peaceful, tolerant Germany. In the weeks leading up, to the Olympics, they took down all those anti-Semitic signs that Jews couldn't sit there and so on because they didn't want to lose the Olympics. <coughs> People called for a boycott. It's the very first time. It failed. The Berlin Olympics are known, and you can see, by the way, what the crowd is saying here. We belong to you, Hitler. The Berlin Olympics were known as the first Olympics that had the torch. It was a propaganda coup for Germany because instead of the boycott, 49 countries showed up and legitimized the Hitler regime. German athletes got the most, the most medals, of course, and Hitler was going to shake the hand of all the gold medal winners. The 1936 Olympics, if you are aware, were the ones that Jesse Owens won four medals. Hitler did not shake anybody's hand that won a gold medal because there's no way in heck he was going to shake the hand of a black guy that beat all the Aryans. There's no way. New York Times said, games put Germans back in the fold of nations and even made them more humane again. So Hitler continued his policies. So we have increased propaganda about the enemy, the Jew, the intent is now to impoverish the Jews. Businesses must be registered so they could later be confiscated. You could be dismissed from any job just for being a Jew. Jews had to have special identification papers that had the name of Israel or Sarah in the, in the, in the, as a middle name. Israel for the men, Sarah for the ladies. Don't ask me why they picked those two. Could have been Abraham and Sarah, but they picked Israel. And so passports had to be marked with a J. And you can see on this gal's passport, on this person's passport, that there is this Sarah right there. That's a new middle name. Because in Europe back then, you had to have papers when you went anywhere. They would ask for your papers. And if you didn't have it, you'd be in trouble. There were 76 ways Jews could be harassed legally. You could be dragged from your home, beaten, spat upon, and driven out of town. They rounded up Jews who had been previously convicted of crimes. Doesn't matter what the crime was to remove the criminal element from the population of about 500 people. You can see how, how, how antisocial these guys look. We're sent to Buchenwald. It was now becoming impossible for Jews to live in Germany as Jews. You want to immigrate? Great. Here's what you need. 
to leave Germany. All right? Look at all that paperwork. Certificate verifying that you're going to, you know, dissolve your, your residence in Germany. You had to get approval for immigrating. You had to pay a tax. You had to submit a list in triplicate. And this was before fax machines. This was carbon paper. Verifying and stating the value of all your personal and household goods, and then explain why you need to move them out of the country. You could only take about 2,000 Reichmarks in currency. And you had to have valid travel arrangements and a visa for the country you wanted to go to. First defiance is the Rhineland in March of 1936. The Versailles Treaty said no German troops are going to be allowed in this region. Hitler said, I'm not going to go there. And they're going to break the peace. So he sent troops in. He said, look, if you encounter resistance from the French and the British, back away. Neither country wanted to oppose Germany. They wanted appeasement in, in order to avoid war. Had they resisted, the Nazis might have fallen. So now Hitler announces a four-year plan to prepare for war to be financed probably by extorted Jewish assets. The second defiance is the Anschluss, the annexation of Austria, of Austria to, in March of 1938. Austria is now part of the Third Reich. He threatened the chancellor, turn over the government or else. And then they had an election. Here's the ballot. You can see that the yes, the ja, is big. Nein is small. So 99.75% of the people supported the annexation. Gee, I wonder what the hanging chat on that one was. This meant now that Nazis could act with impunity and it cost Poland to take action to prevent a flood of returning Jews. So Hitler recognizing, I mean, our president Roosevelt, recognizing that the Jews were having a problem, convened a conference in Avion, France invited 30, 32 countries to see if they could solve the problem. He sent a businessman, didn't send anybody from Congress, anybody from the cabinet, sent the businessman to the meeting. You can see some of the excuses that people use because no country, I'm sorry, one country said they would take Jews, the Dominican Republic. No other country, and these were the excuses they used. The Dominican Republic said they would take 500 Jews. No country in Europe, no country in South America, not the United States, not Canada, not Australia. And you can see the headline from the Herald Tribune in New York. Power slammed doors against German Jews. So Hitler said, gee, if people were complaining about what I'm doing to the Jews, they haven't stepped up. It's amazing to me they're not opening their borders. This gave Hitler a green light because now previous enemies would not resist German aggression. Good. I'm going to skip this one. Then we have September of 1938, the famous Munich Pact. Neville Chamberlain comes back from a meeting with Hitler waving a piece of paper that says he made peace with Hitler. Peace for our time. Agreeing that Germany could occupy part of, the Czech, part of Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland they had to give up after World War I, and Hitler promised, this is September of 1938, he promised this was his final territorial claim in Europe. And there's video, I'm not going to show it, video of Chamberlain coming back, waving that piece of paper, and the crowd is yelling. Some of us remember seeing this, this, this stuff going, yay, I got peace in our time, I stopped Hitler, I stopped Hitler. 
he didn't stay prime minister very long. So in summary, we have these events. The invasion of the Rhineland, the annexation of Austria, the Evian Conference, and peace in our time. Hitler is getting the idea that he can almost do what he wants. So what we have is these events of 1938, where Germany starts canceling passports, they send people back to Russia, they expelled 17,000 Jews back to Poland. Poland didn't want them. Germany didn't want them back. They're stuck in a border town. So one of the families, the Grinspan family, has their 17-year-old son, Herschel, living in France. They write a postcard to him and say, we're, having, we're stuck in this refugee camp. Things are not looking so good. Can you help us get to the United States? Well, he gets so upset, he gets a gun and goes into a German embassy. Demands to speak to the ambassador. They laugh him off. So he shoots an undersecretary, and that man dies. And that began the excuse that Goebbels needed to start action against the Jews. He called it a conspiratorial attack by international jury against the Reich and symbolically against the Fuhrer himself. And the Fuhrer has decided that demonstrations should not, listen to this, should not be prepared or organized by the party. They should basically be spontaneous. So they had many folks in the Hitler Youth and other units dress in civilian clothes to support this propaganda fake news that the disturbances were expressions of outraged public reaction. Here are the, here are the orders that came from the, to the Gestapo. Actions against Jews will take place throughout the Reich shortly. That's not spontaneous. And they're not to be interfered with. You're supposed to talk to the local police, make sure that there's no looting. Make preparations to arrest about 20 to 30,000 Jews, above all well-to-do Jews. We're going to get detailed instructions shortly. If you find Jews with weapons, act accordingly. So take measures that will not endanger German life or property. If there's a synagogue burning, take care of the building next to it. Businesses should be destroyed, not plundered. Special care is to be taken that non-Jewish businesses are absolutely secured from damage. Foreign nationals should not be molested. And as many Jews, especially the well-off ones, that can be arrested as can be accommodated. Healthy male Jews, not to old, are to be arrested. These are cities where synagogues were destroyed. Let me see if I can get this to play. Where's the pointer on this? Is there a pointer? Is there a pointer on this thing? I need my tech. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see if I can get. That might not work because I don't even have, I'm not sure I'm on the internet. If it doesn't, that's okay. Oh, look at that. Oh, it works. Look at that. Son of a gun. Let's expand, expand it right there. And we heard banging and hollering and screaming for God. 
I, I let my seat like hours, and then it stopped, and we thought it was safe enough to go downstairs. And when it came downstairs, all the whole business, all the windows were broken, all the, the, the tools were strewn over the floor, and the benches were broken up. And in our apartment, every chair and every sofa and every bed was was cut open with a knife. And there was a phone call in the middle of the night in November that was either 11, like at 3 o'clock in the morning. My mother was called and told that my father and my brother had been taken to jail and that the house and the business had been destroyed that night. Suddenly, my home was broken into. I was in bed. I was asleep. And about six Nazis came in, smashed everything. And I remember I had a picture, which I was glass covered. Yeah, I know which picture it was a picture of Jerusalem on on the side, on the wall over my bed, and they smashed it in glass, just sprayed all over me. Like I guess as I saw them go for the picture, I put the cover over myself and escaped them, and they broke everything that they could get a hold of in the house, and. Then they left, and as I got to my house, I see a mob seen in front of our house, and windows were broken, and they were stealing the silver, they're stealing the dishes, they're stealing the clothing, anything that was not nailed down, they were stealing from our house. And as I walk into the house, my <coughs> my mother said, "What are you doing here?" I said, I just couldn't stand it in Titsingen because there is something terrible going on. She says, well, the same thing is going on here too. And then I, as I was saying that, one of the uh, Nazis was just about ready to hit me. And I said, where's father? She, she, said, she said to me, well, he was taken and he is somewhere in the village, he's arrested. And we were awake in the middle of the night and um, by banging on the door. And uh, one of my mother said, who is it? They just said the police. All the beautiful paintings with the glass, all the glass first, all the glass, and and um, and everything in the house. And my mother kept saying, "We've done nothing. We've done nothing." And they said, "Where's your husband? Where's your husband?" And they said to me, "Where's your father?" And I said, "I don't know." My father was arrested. He was beaten, but he was released a few days later. Uh, there were incidents. Uh, I remember fights. Um, at a Jewish camp, I was one summer when some of the Hitler youth threw stones and rocks at us, and some of us were injured. My father was um, arrested and threatened with Dachau unless he, he would leave Germany within a few days, maybe a week, I can't remember. And uh, since he hadn't so long in France, he obtained a permit right away and left for France. My mother and my brother and I moved in with our, our grandparents 
to cause the ear render, but to carve part into it. And we were not allowed to take, but very little left. Okay, I need the tech help. I want to get out of this. No, no, no. My parents got a letter. The young people can do this stuff, I can. Thank you. So here you get to see some of the damage. The storefront, the vandalized homes, the burning synagogues. And you can see the firemen here are not putting out the fire in the synagogue. They're putting it out on the building next to it. Here's the great synagogue in Warsaw, the before and after pictures. It's destroyed synagogues. Here's one in Czechoslovakia, burning in the inside of that synagogue. Watching the synagogue furnishings burning. Prayer books. Torah scrolls. The Torah is the holiest artifact in Judaism. And the Nazis would burn it. They would go in and they'd rip it up and have people, have the Jews wipe the floor with it. In some synagogues, there are stories of as the, as the Nazis were trying to go in and burn the Torahs, a Jew would go in and try to save it. And they would wrap the Torah around him and burn him with it. 1,400 synagogues were burned, 7,000 stores and hundreds of homes damaged and looted. Tens of thousands of Jews terrorized in their homes. Cemeteries and schools vandalized. Children and Jewish orphanages thrown out in the street. 96 Jews were killed. 36 sustained, sustained injuries or committed suicide. 30,000 Jews were sent to three concentration camps. And here you can see Bystanders, and I want you to look at this. These people in the front right here. They seem to be giggling and laughing and having a good time as they're watching the Jews being taken away. So here are the Jews at Buchenwald after Kristallnacht. This is the first instance in which the Nazi regime incarcerated Jews on a massive scale simply on the basis of their being Jewish. Here's the Nazi response. Remember, they said that they had the units dress up as of it. So, Kristallnacht was not a government action, but a spontaneous expression of German dissatisfaction with the Jews. They met to assess the damage and use it as a rationale for promoting more anti-Jewish laws. With the very last line that Gehrig said, you received a notice from Hitler requesting that the Jewish question be now, once and for all, coordinated and solved one way or another. Jews were fined $400 million for the damage. They were ordered to clean up and make the repairs. They didn't do it, but they were ordered to do it. They couldn't collect the insurance. Insurance companies had to pay the Nazi government. Now they start implementing more laws, depriving Jews of their property and means of a livelihood. The intent was to remove Jews entirely from German economics and social life and eventually to have Germany free of Jews. So now they're excluded from all areas of public life. Bank accounts are frozen. Can't own any valuables, radios, or pets. Can't have a driver's license. Can't own an automobile. Can't use a telephone. In those days, you had to go through an operator to use the telephone. Couldn't go to the barber, beauty salon. Couldn't buy foods that were rationed. Could not go into German theaters, movie cinemas, or concert halls. Expelled from public schools. Had to abide by curfews. 
couldn't have any firearms or truncheons or stabbing weapons. Population dropped from half a million to about 350,000. Many of the Jews fled to other European countries. You want to come to the U.S.? Here's what you needed. Again, remember, no fax machines. This had to be all carbon paper. Six copies of a visa application. Two copies of your birth certificate. I can't even get one. I have to get two. A quota number from that country. Two sponsors who were American citizens and provided six notarized copies of affidavit support and sponsorship. A certified copy of the most recent federal tax return and affidavit from a bank about your accounts had to have a certificate of good conduct from German police authorities. Two copies of a police dossier, prison record, military record, or other government records about you. And you had to pass a physical examination. This is all just to get to the United States. In June of 1939, a ship left Germany to go to Cuba. It's made famous in the movie Voyage of the Damned. Carried 900 Jewish refugees who had done all the paperwork, got the visas from Cuba. The moment they got on the boat and set sail, Cuba said, you ain't coming here. They wind up going down to Havana, couldn't get off the boat. They can see Miami down there. Nobody brought them in. The United States didn't have, wouldn't have them. Cuba wouldn't have them. They had to go back. And of the 900, 254 were killed in the Holocaust. How did the world respond? People said, we didn't know what went on. Here's the New York Times. Everybody read the New York Times back then. This was way before fake news. Okay, here's the London Express, the Philadelphia Inquirer. I saw a headline in the Houston Chronicle. People knew. Here's the Nazi newspaper. No power on earth can keep us from bringing the Jewish question to its total solution. We wanted to do it back when we took office in 33. It's a British diplomat. The Jews in Germany are indeed not a national but a world problem, which if neglected contains the seeds of a terrible vengeance. So the United States tried to get a bipartisan bill called the Wagner-Rogers Bill in February of 1939. It was bipartisan. They wanted to admit 20,000 German refugee children under the age of 14 outside the usual quotas. Look who supported it. Helen Hayes, Henry Fonda, Alf Landon, Herbert Hoover, clergymen, labor leaders, university presidents. Even Grace Coolidge, former first lady, said she would, she would personally take in 25 children. One of FDR's cousins, who was the wife of the US Commissioner of Immigration, said, 20,000 charming children will all too soon grow up to be 20,000 ugly adults. And Eleanor Roosevelt privately supported but said nothing in public. FDR, I myself could scarcely believe that such things could occur in 20th century civilization. But he chose to follow public opinion and did not support the Wagner-Rogers bill. Here's what some people said about Jewish immigration. I think I've heard some of this very recently, too. Charity begins at home. We should be helping thousands of our own poor children, not them. We don't want to break up German families. <laughs> America should not respond to external pressure to increase immigration to the United States. If we help those from abroad, we should, you know, should not limit our aid to just those of certain ethnicity or nationality. And of course, the immigration of these children might bring unwanted foreign elements into the US, such as spies or communists or thieves or murderers. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not in there. 
that come from somewhere else. If we signal out Jewish people for assistance, it's going to backfire and create more anti-Semitism in the United States. This is what people were saying. So nativist and isolationist groups, including the American Legion and the State Department, opposed it. The immigration community said, you know what? We'll bring in the 20,000 against the existing quota. This nullified the bill's intent. Died in committee in July, and expressions of sympathy were not matched by deed. And you can see from the cartoon, the refugees are asking Congress to open the door. There was no use of US economic sanctions against Nazi Germany, no severing of diplomatic relations, and no change in immigration law to admit more Jews. A year later, Pitt Magazine launched a campaign to save British puppies from German bombing raids, and they were flooded with several thousand offers of haven for the dogs. Not Jewish children, save the dogs. And of course, when British children were endangered by German bombing raids, Roosevelt and Congress pushed through legislation enabling thousands of those children to come to the United States. Religious responses. Here are some church responses. Most churches had been concerned about refugee work, mostly for Christians. There was a little resurgence of activism, but it wasn't really matched by the rest of the community. And refugee work was just moved to the sidelines. Some churches invited Jews to come speak to their congregations, like they did in Plymouth, but pretty much not much. Here is a cartoon published. What is the fate of the Jews? for Christians to accept the moral responsibility to help the downtrodden. I'm going to skip this. So here we have some clergy responses. Most of this is from, Catholic, from the Catholic University. Our sense of justice is outraged by the persecution of the Jew in Germany. In the face of such injustice towards the Jews, I express my revulsion, disgust, and grief. Where in the light of the fury of inhumanity raging in Germany is the tolerance of our vaunted advance in civilization? Where is the Christianity? that once reigned in a Christian nation. Christian Century said this, we strive to immunize the rest of the world to be a contagion of the spirit. We need to disassociate ourselves from this program. We need to talk to people about the truth about the Jews. And we need to encourage fellowship between Jews and Christians. The last response from the Christian Science Monitor is one we hear all too often today. Prayer is the answer, not more immigration. So some statements recognized and focused on the immediate threat to Germany's Jews. Others spoke of a much larger history, uh, larger uh, re generalized religious persecution. They really didn't pick up the Jews. The Catholics were a little concerned about what was going on in Spain. And it just said that you know, there is, you know, Jews could be a mere prelude to violence against Christians in Germany. So what Kristallnacht meant is that Jews are cut off from German, German economic and social life, and persecution changed from economic, political, social to physical. It is now OK to harm the Jews. If Jews wanted to immigrate, they had nowhere to go. We have numerous concentration camps in operation. Living space became an operating principle. Hitler's already considering the invasion of, of Poland. But the passivity, indifference, and inaction of the German people showed the Nazis that they would encounter little opposition, even from the German churches. And they suffered no serious consequences. They could now do what they wanted with the Jews, 
and Krista Mach thus became a turning point in Nazi anti-Jewish policy that would culminate in the mass murder of two-thirds of European Jewry. Why is this important? We already saw not all the victims were Jews, but all Jews were victims. The Nazis wanted to exterminate every single Jewish man, woman, and child. Jews were the only people killed for the crime of existing. Evidence of Jewish blood was sufficient to warrant the punishment of death. It was a means to an end. It was not a means to an end, rather. It was an end to itself. And the people who carried out the final solution to carry out the murder of those Jews were average citizens who chose to act that way. Why didn't you talk, teach talk about the Holocaust? Here's why. One out of, this is a recent study that came out. One out of 10 adults haven't heard of the Holocaust or aren't sure if they did. 30% of all Americans and 41% of millennials believe that no more than 2 million Jews were killed. You already heard that 6 million were killed. Raise your hand if you know what Auschwitz was. Oh, good. You beat that stat. <laughs> okay. Four out of 10 adults cannot name a concentration camp or ghetto. Majority of adults believe that fewer people care about the Holocaust today, and more than half believe that the Holocaust could happen again. In 2017, this is the uh, um, map of hate groups that went from 917 to 954 hate groups in this country. Look where most of them are. All right? That's the old Confederacy. Greatest growth was in neo-Nazi groups, 22% rise. Anti-Muslim groups also rose for the third straight, group, third straight year. Third straight year. Anti-immigrant groups rose from 14 to 22. More than 600 of the 900 groups adhere to some form of a white supremacist ideology. There's a black nationalist group. There was a rise in active anti-government groups, the Patriot Movement. Look how many hate groups we have in North Carolina. 32. Look where they are. In 2017, there was a 67% increase in anti-Semitic incidents. Physical assaults, vandalism, attacks on Jewish institutions, 15 reported incidents of harassment or vandalism in North Carolina. The numbers have gone up. Much increased after the Charlottesville rally, and look at the flags they're carrying. Incidents in six to K to 12 grade schools more than doubled. There was a half an 59 percent increase on in college campuses, and of course, October of this year, one of the deadliest attacks on Jews in U.S. history. I want you to ask yourself these questions: Do you treat all people with full human dignity? Or do you treat them differently because of their religion, their skin color, gender, or who they love? Are you truly certain that you would not submit to pressure to conform and participate in horrible deeds? Could you embrace a belief that your cause is just or right and the others are the enemy who threatened me and must be eliminated? Can you sincerely pledge liberty and justice for all? When I speak at schools, I ask them this question if they ask the Pledge of Allegiance. If they recite it and they say yes, I ask them to tell me the last line which, of course, is liberty and justice for all. And then I asked him these questions again. I said, if you, don't, if you can't answer these questions as yes, how dare you say the Pledge of Allegiance? Because that means you are making a pledge to treat people with full human dignity. 
and I've said this in front of teachers, then don't, then don't say the pledge because your word means nothing. What about the golden rule? Do you believe it? Do you practice it? Here's a ladder of prejudice. Everything in the Holocaust started with speech, wound up putting, avoiding people, becomes us and them. You can now treat people differently. You can attack them. You can exterminate them. Here's how we see it in society. The speech is on the bottom, works its way up, and we've already seen it. I just talked about Pittsburgh. People were, guy went in and said, kill all Jews. Here's how we see it in schools. Using insulting nicknames, taunting people, ridiculing them, putting them down for not fitting in, rumoring, spreading rumors, making up and telling mean stories, excluding people, not, not letting them have a place at your table, shunning contact with them, ganging up on them, bullying. It's the same. Here's your speech. That's how you avoid people. Now you can treat them differently. You can gang up and attack them. You can bully them, and there's your death. Suicide. It's the same. So what about you? How wide is your circle of friends? How diverse is your holiday card list? Are you quick to label people? Do you tell sexist, racist, or homophobic jokes? Do you have the courage to ask a friend not to tell those kinds of jokes? Do you speak up in the face of bigotry, hatred, or prejudice? Do you belong to clubs or groups that exclude others? How integrated is your neighborhood, your church, the schools you went to or your kids go to? What do your kids or grandchildren say, hear you say, or see you do? What can you do to promote hate, not hate, not here? Educate yourself about the culture and experiences of other groups. Have people like me come and speak to your group. Look at your own attitudes and behaviors to see how you may be contributing to or combating prejudice. Avoid terms or phrases that may be degrading or hurtful to other groups. When I go to schools, I ask them if they use the, you know, the phrase, that's so retarded. And they go, yeah, I say, ah, forget it. Think about what you're saying. Give equal attention to others regardless of race, religion, gender, socioeconomic class, or other difference. Work to increase your awareness of biased contact in the media and model inclusive language and behavior. I'm going to skip that. Martin Neumoller, a pastor in the German Counseling Church, made this quote, this poem, which is one of the most famous quotes that came out of the Holocaust. First, they came for the communists. I did not speak out because I was not one. They came for the socialists. I didn't speak up because I was not one. Labor leaders, Jews, and so on. But guess what? Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. Here's my version. Might not care if they target Muslims because you're not a Muslim. I don't care if they target immigrants because you're not an immigrant. I don't care if they say it's okay to silence protesters or the media because you're not one of them and they had an incident happen today. Silence the mem member of the media. Not allowed to go into the White House anymore after five years. I might not care if they vilify women in the handicap because you're not one of them. I might not care if they target the LGBTQ community because you're not one. Man, I care they target Jews because you're not one, but what happens if they keep going? I just get around to you, and you better hope there's someone left to help you. Elie Wiesel, most famous Holocaust survivor and Nobel laureate, said this. I swear never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must always take sides. Neutrality helps the aggressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. 
So as we reflect on Kristallnacht and its aftermath, let's remember all those whose lives were lost or forever altered by the Holocaust, including my parents, their family members, and other relatives. These are my parents, Sophie and Eddie Blyweiss, my father's family. My father is this good-looking kid on the left here. Looks, I look like him because I'm a good-looking kid. <laughs> rest of his family was killed. His sister was shot in the streets, right there, shot in the streets, and the rest of them were killed in Madonic. And this is my mother's family. My, father, my mother's parents were killed in Treblinka. So history teaches us that genocide can be prevented if enough people care enough to act. Our choices in response to hatred truly do matter. If we are sincere when you pledge liberty and justice for all, if you practice what Jesus preached, and if you truly believe in and practice the golden rule, you can help fulfill the promise of never again. Remember, it didn't start with gas chambers. It started with people dividing us, people into us and them. We're hearing that today. It started intolerance and hate speech, and when people stopped caring, became desensitized and turned a blind eye. And lastly, Edmund Burke said, all that's necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Thank you. <laughs>